Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my personal thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth discussion of the films that I love. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. This week's episode is all about Jessica Hausner's 2009 film, Lord. It's about a young woman named Christine. She's in a wheelchair, she's paralyzed, and she is one of many pilgrims who go to the place of Lord, which is in France. It's a Catholic holy site where... People hope to be cured or to find some kind of healing for the things that they are going through. While Christine is at Lord, something happens to her. And what happens to her is the focus of this episode. I think this is an extraordinary little film that nobody talks about, but I find it very haunting. And I find it to be a very interesting exploration of religion. There are spoilers in this episode, I will warn you. I also talk about loneliness, disability, my own struggles with religion. So there's a lot in this episode, and I hope that you'll stick around and listen to it. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast on a monthly basis and also access rewards and extras. I now have merchandise on my Patreon. There is Her Head and Films swag that you can get access to. So definitely check it out if you're interested. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadandfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadandfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. I'd love to give a shout out to my new patron, Rachel. Thank you so much. And I'd also like to give a shout out to my longtime patrons, Tyler, Max, Juan, Iris, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. Thank you all for being patrons. I appreciate it. You make the podcast possible. So thank you so much. If financial support is not an option for you, and I definitely understand if it isn't, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes and or Stitcher. If you write a review on iTunes, I will share it on the podcast on a future episode, and I'll leave out your name just to protect your privacy. You can also tell your friends, your followers, people on social media, all about Her Head and Films if you really love the podcast. Or you can just send me an encouraging message or comment, or you can engage with me in a positive way on social media. Your comments, your messages, they mean a lot to me, and they help me so much more than you can understand. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Herhead Films. You can see links to all my social media accounts listed in the show notes of each episode. So first I'm going to talk about something kind of personal that happened to me this week. Then I'm going to talk about a couple of films I saw recently and what I've been watching. I'll also talk about the history of Lord, about a young girl named Bernadette Subaru who saw apparitions, and that's how we have modern day Lord, this holy site. 
And then finally, I will talk about Jessica Hausner's film, why I love it, why I think it's worthy of your time if you haven't seen it yet. I'll just talk about this film that I love so much. So let's get started. think of this podcast as a record of both my past and my present. It's always been really important to me from day one to make cinema personal. I think we are so inundated by reviews and opinions and think pieces and it can be so overwhelming. But I love every week, for the most part, bringing you one film to focus on. I like to think that's maybe not too much. (laughs) And I love doing this podcast. It means so much to me. But I do want to talk about something personal for a minute. Because something happened to me this week and it really scared me. And I find myself still struggling with it. And it happened earlier in the week. And I was just in my house, walking around. And my right foot got tangled in my left pant leg. And I just fell down to the floor really, really hard. I fell on my left side and I fell on my left knee really bad. And I fell on my left hand, which I'm left-handed. So that scared me as well. And it happened so quickly. Within a few seconds, one minute I was walking and the next I was on the floor, my dog ran up to me and I was alone. I was by myself when this happened. I am very lucky that I didn't break anything. I didn't hit my head. It it could have been so much worse. But I find that the emotional part of it has been hard for me. I hurt my um, hand and it was bruised uh, really bad. And my left knee hurt. I put some ice on it quickly. I took some ibuprofen. And so physically... I'm okay, but in my mind, because I struggle with anxiety especially, I've for days been thinking about, oh my God, what if I had hit my head? What if I had broken something? I don't have health insurance. What would I have done? Yeah, you can go to the ER for emergencies. Say I had broken something and I needed a cast. I'm sure they would have put a cast on it, but what about the aftercare? What about weeks and months or whatever down the line? Where would I have gone? What would I have done? I think of, you know, I think about the precariousness of my life. That if something bad was to happen to my body, what would that do to me? And I got to thinking afterwards how that really sort of connects with what I'm talking about this week with Lord. I had already recorded the episode on Lord, but I got to thinking how this idea of your body being vulnerable your body being precarious of this is what you live in and yet this is something that you can't always protect and that something outside of you or just a freak accident like what I had can change your life forever. This could have been a moment when I could have really hurt myself the way I fell. It was bad. I've never fallen like that before and it was scary and it, I think it just reminded me of my vulnerability. And that and those experiences 
are hard for me to deal with. Uh, to remember that I don't have control of, over everything and something bad can happen to you. And I fear pain. I fear getting hurt in that way. And so even though I've physically healed, I'm okay now. Several days have passed and I'm all right. I just find that emotionally and mentally it has really affected me and I've tried in my mind not to go into all the what ifs. What if my mom had come home and found me laying on the floor unconscious? I think about that and I cried after it happened because it just scared me so bad to think about what could have happened to me. So I wanted to share that story Not just because this podcast is about my life and about me and about what I go through and what I have been through, but also because it connects to Lord and to the film this week, that our bodies are always precarious and that there is such a thin line between being healthy, being able-bodied, and then not being any of those things at all and It's scary how quickly you can cross that line and how one minute you can be okay and then the next you're lying on the floor. I I just am so glad it didn't go another way. I'm glad it wasn't worse, but it brought up a lot of fears that I have and I just find myself sort of emotionally wounded by it or scarred by it to some extent. It was just a fall. You know, people fall every day but when it's your body and when you go through that experience it startles you and it really stunned me when it happened so I just wanted to share that and say that this did happen and it's been a difficult experience I'm getting through it I'm finding a way to get through it but I wanted to share something that I went through recently And maybe you've had similar experiences. I don't know what to do with that fear. I try not to think about it too much. Try to watch films or read books and engage my mind in more productive things than obsessing over something that happened days ago and that didn't go badly. But there's just that sense inside of me, that that fear that is always there to some extent that we're so out of control in the world and there's so much that we don't have power over and I think that's one of the root things of my anxiety and why I struggle so much with it I don't know what to do with that fear I don't know how to silence it or calm it down because it's always going around in my head it's always pulsating throughout my body that fear lord is not necessarily connected to that but i just think a lot about the vulnerability of our bodies and how frightening it is and i think lord is engaging with that as you'll see in over the course of my discussion and exploration of the film so i just wanted to share that with you This year, 2018, has been intense. Earlier in the year, my mom was in the hospital. That was a difficult thing to go through. She got a bad case of bronchitis. And then we moved. That was stressful. I'm happy where I am now. 
but the process of moving things was very difficult on my body and it was a stressful experience for sure and I have other things going on that I don't want to go into because they're personal so 2018 has been rocky to say the least and one that I've just really been struggling with and this was not something that I needed at all but it happened I'm okay I got through it but it brought up a lot of fears and anxieties for me and I think that some of that connects a little bit to Lord in terms of looking at the precariousness of the body and the vulnerability of the body and how we really struggled I think to cope with that to think of ourselves as vulnerable I think that's really hard for people so I'll stop here on this personal note but I did want to share it with you now I'm gonna tell you all about a couple of films that I watched recently I have this new segment I added called what I've been watching so I'm just gonna share with you a couple of films I've seen that I think are really important and that I think that you might like too recently added a new segment of the podcast where I talk about what I've been watching. And since I last recorded an episode, two films have really been haunting me and staying with me. And I'd actually like to dedicate full-length episodes to them in the future. But for now, I just want to mention them to you because I don't know when I'll be able to do those episodes, but I have a very long list of films that I want to cover on the podcast, and I've added these two to them, so in the future, I definitely hope to go deeper into them, but for now, until that day, I want to tell you about these films, and I really want to urge you to watch them or seek them out or just see them if you have a chance to. The first one is called Under the Sand, and it's from 2000, and it's directed by Francois Ozon. And it stars Charlotte Charlotte Rampling in one of her most powerful performances, I think. I would liken it to what she did in Andrew Hayes' 45 Years, which is a really powerful film that she's also in. In Under the Sand, Charlotte Rampling plays a woman named Marie. She and her husband go on vacation and they go down to the beach. She ends up taking a nap, sort of nodding off. And she wakes up and her husband isn't there. And he has disappeared. She does not know what has happened to him. And the film is about the aftermath of that. Did he go into the water? Did he drown? Did something else happen to him? He just vanishes. And the film is about exploring her reaction to that and her grief. And it's just incredibly haunting. I definitely have to talk about this film in a full-length episode. I don't want to give away too much of the plot because I think it's one of those films you should really go into it without knowing a lot. But it's really about a woman who cannot accept what has happened to her husband. Ozon goes deeply into this woman's world and 
into her inability to grieve, her inability to accept reality. I really related to it. I felt there were some connections to a film that I've covered called Birth by Jonathan Glazer, which came several years later. But I do wonder if Jonathan Glazer was perhaps inspired by this film because both of them are, are mining sort of similar territory of a woman dealing with a husband who, you know, the loss of a husband and grief and things like that. And so that's why this film is so powerful for me. I think Charlotte gives such a tremendous performance. Again, I don't want to go into too much detail about it, but I would absolutely urge you to watch this film. The second film that has really been haunting me is one that I hadn't, I didn't know about until recently. I saw it on a site called Mubi. That's also where I saw Under the Sand. And it was just sort of a happy accident, I guess, that it was about to expire. Because if you know Mubi, they only have films for 30 days and then the film is gone. So I saw this Ken Loach film. It's directed by him. It's from 1971 and it's called Family Life. The description looked interesting, but I had never heard of this film. I had never read a review of it. But these are sort of the accidents or the discoveries that I live for. I absolutely live for this. When you just come across a film randomly, it looks interesting. You check out the trailer, maybe. Sometimes I do that. And you watch it and you're just so moved. You feel a deep personal connection to it. And that's the way I feel about family life. It's about a young woman named Janice played by Sandy Ratcliffe. She is struggling with mental illness. It's not clear what she has. They may have mentioned schizophrenia in the film. I can't quite remember. She lives with her parents and she has a very tumultuous relationship with them. They're very hateful towards her at times. Her father can be hurtful and violent. Her mother is incredibly difficult and they really don't want her to be independent. They they claim they do, but I don't think they do really. And they're sort of like a working class family as well. And Janice has tr trouble holding down a job because of her mental illness. She has trouble functioning and her parents end up sort of persuading her to enter a mental hospital and her experiences there. At one point she becomes pregnant and her mother really sort of forces her to have an abortion. So this is a woman who is under so many pressures by the society she lives in where she cannot really function and take care of herself and be independent and who also has a family that tries to squelch any kind of individuality or joy that she has. Her parents are incredibly overbearing and controlling in a lot of ways. And what I felt for Janice was a tremendous amount of empathy and compassion of this woman really being destroyed by her parents and the society that she lives in and struggling with mental illness and not being able to cope with life and to cope with the circumstances that she found herself in. And I saw a lot of myself in Janice because I also struggle with mental illness. I also struggle to, to live, to survive, to sort of function in the world. I felt a lot of 
identification with Janice and saw myself in her situation. And I haven't really felt that kind of connection to a character in a long time. Probably not since I saw Barbara Loden's 1970 film Wanda. And it's interesting that Wanda came out in 1970 and then Family Life was in 1971. Both of these films about two two different women. Wanda is set in the United States. Family Life is set in Britain by Ken Loach. The stories are different. Wanda is, is a different character from Janice. But both of them are women on the margins. Women who struggle to cope struggle to live, to fit into a society, struggle with their family. Wanda abandons her family, really. So these two women resonate with me in a lot of ways because of my own experiences. So I did not plan to watch Family Life. I had never heard of it before. But I started it, and as soon as I started watching it, it's almost two hours... As soon as I started watching Family Life, I was completely engrossed in it. That doesn't always happen. Sometimes I, sometimes it can take me a long time to watch a film. I'll stop it. I'll pause it. I'll abandon it for days at a time. But this one kept me watching. The story of Janice kept me engaged and it moved me and I was crying at times. Sometimes people are very cruel towards Janice and I found myself feeling very moved and very emotional as I watched this film. So I did want to mention those two films to you, Under the Sand and Family Life, about very different women, very different experiences. But because of my own life experiences where I've had a range of things happen to me and I've been through a range of of ordeals in my life, including grief, including mental illness, including issues with family and all of that, because of my own personal pain and my past and my history, these films struck a chord with me and... I find myself still thinking about them. Who can say how this happens? How films become a part of you? It's a really mysterious but beautiful thing about cinema. And it's something that I'll talk about more as I explore Lord with you. I don't know why these films that I watched years ago still think about them all the, all these years later. I don't know how that happens or why that happens. And then other people could watch the same exact film. They could watch Wanda or Lord or Under the Sand or Family Life. And it have no effect on them at all. But because of our diverse experiences, all of us react to films in very personal ways. And we bring our experiences to the table. And I love that. I love reading, writing about films that is infused with the personal. I like creating a podcast like this that centers the personal. I like that because to me, films are about humanity. Films are about the human condition. They're about connection in a lot of ways for me. They may not be that to everybody, but that's what they mean to me. This is life to me, these films. And who can say why one stays with you and haunts you and why other ones don't, but then they might haunt somebody else. 
I think that whole process is fascinating of why certain films resonate with some people and then not with others. So that's why I like to center the personal experience of a film. I think there's a lot to explore in it. So Family Life and Under the Sand. If you're able to to watch them, I urge you to do so because these films have so much to say. I think that they could maybe move you too or resonate with you too. And so that's why I wanted to mention them and let you know what I've been watching and what has haunted me. And as I said before, I would like to dedicate full episodes to these films. I'd love to go into the the soul of them, into the details, into every single thing about them that moved me so much. So I have them on the list and hopefully I'll get to them one day. But until then, I just wanted to let you know about those films. So now I'm going to talk a bit about Lord, about Lord the the site in France, some of the history, and about Bernadette Subaru, and just give you a little brief history of of Lord, what it means, why it exists, and then I will talk more about the film with you. is quite a famous place. Most people know about it. It's a town in southwestern France. It's known as a site where a young girl named Bernadette Subaru claimed that she saw 18 apparitions of the Virgin Mary. Since then, it's become a holy site for Catholics around the world. It's a place where Catholics and non-Catholics go on an a pilgrimage and they go there for healing and some of them go there to be cured and it's actually a place that has fascinated me for a long time. I'm not a religious person. I would consider myself an atheist more than an agnostic. All through my life I've been very interested in religion. I grew up in a small town in North Carolina If any of you are familiar with the South, the region of the South in the United States, it's known as a very religious place. It's not known to have a lot of Catholicism in it. It's more Protestant Christianity like Baptists and Presbyterians. And where I grew up, there were churches everywhere, churches on every corner. And sometimes I did go to church when I was very young But from an early age, I was not religious. I never felt any kind of spirituality. I never had any kind of spiritual experiences. There was this thing in me that I knew was there, but I didn't know how to articulate it. I didn't know what to call it. And it wasn't until I got older and I discovered atheism, and I read atheist writers, that was when I could finally put a name to what I believed, that I didn't believe anything. I used to be a bit more militant about my atheism, I will be honest. I used to just be really militant about it. I still think it's important to critique and challenge institutions of power, and I will always believe that, that the Catholic Church especially 
in the news right now. There are so many stories about sexual abuse, physical abuse, violence that has been covered up for decades and decades. That is an abuse of power done in the name of religion. I do think that religion can be a damaging thing. And I think it's damaging for a lot of people. It can breed intolerance and bigotry. Think about evangelical Christians who are very anti-gay. Think about just the different forms of religious extremism that exist in the world. So I do have a belief that religion can be damaging and it can be a negative thing in people's lives. At the same time, religion can be a positive thing in people's lives. I'm not against that and I certainly don't criticize that. I totally understand if somebody needs religion, if they need to believe in something greater than themselves, if religion gives them a sense of meaning and purpose, it helps them survive and it helps them live, gives them comfort and solace and peace. I totally understand that. I have nothing wrong with that. My problem is when religion is forced on people. That's my problem is I'm a very big believer in the separation between church and state. And I don't just believe that you should have freedom of religion. I think you should also have freedom from religion. And I just believe that people's belief or non-belief should be respected and not just tolerated, but accepted. That it is okay to be an atheist. And I think even in our world today, atheism is a taboo. It's certainly a taboo in the South. It's certainly a taboo in very conservative areas of the United States. I have a lot of conflicts with religion because of where I grew up. That religion was sort of forced down my throat constantly. And because I didn't believe that, and because I'm not religious, that people look at me in a certain way and they think that I'm bad or they think that I'm immoral or they think there's something wrong with me because I don't believe in God or I don't believe in any kind of spirituality. That's a very real thing that people like me have to deal with. I've had a lot of negative experiences with it personally, but I absolutely support people's right and their need for religion. I just think that there needs to be mutual respect there. <laughs> that you get to have your religion and you get to believe what you want to believe. But I have a problem when you cross a line or when you want to force it on other people or you want to shame other people for not being your religion. That's what bothers me. But even though I've been an atheist all my life, pretty much, <laughs> I... I've always been interested in religion. I think there's some part of me that always wished that I could be religious just because it would be nice to think that death is not the end. I've been through a lot of loss. I lost my father in 2006 and I also lost my grandmother and my uncle all within three years and those were really devastating experiences for me. And would I have loved to have believed in something? Yeah. Would it have given me peace and comfort? Yes. Would it give that to me now? Yes. It's very hard to believe that somebody you love is gone forever and to not feel any connection to them or any thread to them 
and that you will never see them again. That's painful. And I think it's part of the reason why my devastation is so intense. My lack of religion, my atheism, is certainly a painful thing in that regard. There's, I think there's just always been this part of me that wished I could believe in something. Wished that I could hold on to that. So I have a great deal of sympathy for people who need religion. So I know a lot about Lord. I used to watch stuff about it. And I was always fascinated by it. I was fascinated by were there miracles? Could it cure people? Bernadette Subaru, who saw these apparitions, was only 14 years old. She was illiterate. She was a peasant. She was one of nine children in a very impoverished family. She reminds me a bit of Joan of Arc, who had visions, not visions, but she heard voices at an early age. And I have an episode that I did about the passion of Joan of Arc. So Bernadette saw a series of visions in 1858. She was born in 1844. So when she was 14 years old, she had these apparitions. She was out gathering wood near a grotto. And that's where she saw the first apparition. She saw a young girl who was about her age in a white gown. And at first, nobody believed her. She's a peasant. She's illiterate. But later on, the Catholic Church... um, They did confirm that what she saw was the Virgin Mary. At the grotto where she saw Mary, that is where, that's a very important part of Lord, of this compound that's been built. That is, that grotto has a statue of the Virgin Mary in a white gown and with a blue sash around her waist. That is also where the spring is at Lord. And the spring at Lord is very central and very important. People go to this spring because they think that the waters are healing. They think that the waters can cure and things like that. It's really central to Lord. And people drink the water, they bathe in it, they take little water bottles um, so they can take some of that water back home with them. There's also a medical site on Lord. There's a medical office and they evaluate anyone who claims to have been cured. It's made up of an international team of medical professionals who look at each case. And I think that they've only confirmed about 70 miracles or cures in the entire history of Lord. And I got all this information from a PBS documentary called Sacred Journeys, and it's a series where Bruce Filer goes around and he visits different sacred sites for different religions. So there's one about Mecca, there's one about Lord, it's the first episode, and there's various other sites um, that are very important to pilgrims and people of different religions. It's actually a really interesting series. I only watched the first episode about Lord for my research for this episode, but I'm interested in watching the other episodes because I have an interest in faith and religion. I do watch films about it. 
I don't mean that I watch like Christian films, but I watch films about nuns, for instance. I have seen quite a bit of films about nuns for some reason. For instance, there's a recent film called The Innocents by Anne Fontaine, and it's about Polish nuns after World War II and how some of them were raped by the invading Soviets, I think it was, and how some of them became pregnant. And so it's about an, um, it's about that story. It's actually based on a, a true story. So Lord interests me, films about faith and religion interest me, but I'm interested in films that also sort of critique religion or challenge it a little bit or um, or approach it from maybe a secular way or a non-believing way. I don't watch like Hallmark movies or anything like that. But I am interested in, in some of these questions about faith and religion. It's not an obsession. I wouldn't say I watch tons of films about it. But it is something that interests me to a certain extent because of my childhood and because of my own experiences. Lord is also a very commercialized town. There are all kinds of gift shops where people sell images of the Virgin Mary and they sell little water bottles for the spring water. And watching this PBS documentary was actually really moving to see people go to Lord and to see people who have emotional issues and some are disabled, they have physical ailments and many of them are not necessarily expecting a cure or expecting to be healed physically but some of them are looking for more emotional healing, a sense of peace, a sense of meaning, a sense that they are not alone in their suffering I think. It's just very moving to see thousands of people gather in one place who are all hurting in some way. And I can relate to that. I I understand the quest. I understand the pilgrimage. I understand the desire for healing and for peace and for comfort and solace. I absolutely get that to my core. And that's what was so moving about watching this particular documentary. It's just, I can't put it into words. I got really emotional watching it, actually, which I didn't expect. Because for all my issues with religion, all my issues with the Catholic Church in particular, so much has come out about it. So many horrific stories about what nuns have done, what priests have done. It's unspeakable. I mean, a report just came out in Pennsylvania about victims of abuse and sexual abuse. There could be more than a thousand victims of it. The abuse of power was widespread throughout the United States, throughout the UK. There's been horrific stories from Ireland. It's astonishing the global trauma, the global pain that has been inflicted through the Catholic Church. And I got to thinking as I was watching this documentary, and it's something that also comes up when watching Jessica Hausner's Lord talking about this film, re-watching this film. Does it matter if it's true? Because Hausner, in an interview, talked about how 
At first, she didn't think she could make this film. She thought it was too cruel. She herself considers herself an agnostic or an atheist. She says most days she's an atheist. Sometimes she is an agnostic. She felt it was incredibly cruel that people went to this place thinking they would be cured, thinking they would be healed, and then they leave in the exact same condition as when they arrived. And she felt that that was so incredibly cruel that she could not make a film about it. So she had to find another entry into it. That's what she said. And she talked about another trip that she took to Lourdes where there was the Order of Malta. And she said that that's a group of volunteers and it tends to be rich people who actually volunteer to help out the poor and the sick at Lourdes. And so she realized she could make the film when she set up that contrast between the rich and the poor, between the able-bodied and the non-able-bodied. So she had to find a different way into the film because the concept to her was incredibly cruel that people went there expecting salvation, expecting to be cured, and then they weren't. And I got to thinking as I watched this PBS documentary, does it matter if it's true? It's almost, it, it almost doesn't matter if it's true when it comes to these pilgrims. That's what they're called. The people who travel to Lord every year. More than 5 million people go to Lord every single year. And more than 350,000 of them bathe in the waters. They're taken to these baths. Um, the cameras are not allowed back there. It's very private. And they're bathed in the spring water. And it's considered a very sacred act. The water is cold. The people truly believe that this water has miraculous properties, even though on a chemical level, this is just water. And, of course, anecdotally, people report that they feel less pain after they've had the bath, that they feel a difference in their mental or emotional health after the ritual of bathing, which I think raises the question of the placebo effect of mind over matter, of they, like, they want to feel better, they want to believe that something has changed, and so that's actually how they feel. Because there's nothing special about the water. There is no objective evidence that those who go to Lord will be cured. Like I said, there's been only like 70 confirmed miracles or cures of people who went there and then afterwards their condition changed and it lasted. It has to last. It has to last in order for it to count. So, Five million people are traveling here every year and only 70 confirmed cures. We're talking about something irrational here. We're talking about something. There is no objective evidence that any of this works. And yet people go and they do it every single year. The story of it, the ritual of it, gives them something. I think that's what it is. And obviously, I'll talk all, more about all of this as I'm talking about Lord, the film. There's just so much hurt and pain and trauma in this world. And there's so many people who want solace from it. And it doesn't matter if it's true. You could, I think you could, you could use facts all day with people. 
oh, well, only 70 confirmed cures. There's nothing chemically different about the water. And you'd still have people going and believing in it because of faith, because of belief, because it's so powerful in some people's lives. And some of us can't understand it. I can't understand it. I don't feel that way. I don't have that faith. I don't believe the way that they do. Lord represents something. It it is bigger than I think any of us can put into words, really. It's about the hope that it gives to those who are ill or traumatized or struggling and who need a belief in something greater. But all of it, to some extent, is a bit futile. And I do think there is something cruel about it. I do tend to agree with Jessica Hausner that making people think that they could be cured and then they leave in the same exact condition, there is something cruel about it. And I asked earlier, does it matter if it's true? And to me, it matters if it's true. To me, it matters. I simply cannot believe in something like that. I just can't do it. To me, it does matter. But to the people that go to Lord, it does not matter. The Catholics and the non-Catholics. And there's just a mystery there, I think. There will always be, I think, a mystery at the heart of faith and religion. For those of us who are outsiders, for those of us who do not believe and who do not understand it, we're sort of always on the outside looking in. Obviously, we don't believe that Bernadette saw those apparitions. We don't believe that the Virgin Mary showed herself to Bernadette. We don't believe that that wafer that people put on their tongues is the body of Christ. But the people who believe these things do believe it. And it's mysterious to me. It will always be mysterious to me how people believe these things. I've always been interested in it. I used to watch things about the Amish when I was growing up. I used to watch things about religion, about Catholicism, about stigmata. I used to watch stuff about that. Things about Lord. I've always been interested in these stories. Um, it's not the ex- it's not exactly the same thing, but I've also always been interested in cults, and in Jonestown, for instance, and just different. Um, but I have always been interested in people's desperation to believe in something, because cults represent that. They represent a need on the part of people to believe in something to connect with something greater than themselves. And you saw that in Jonestown. And then, of course, you saw the abuse of power. You saw the corruption, the perversion, just like you've seen in the Catholic Church. But I've just always been interested in people's need and desperation to belong. I think religion gives people a sense of belonging and community. And also to believe in something that objectively is not real and is not true and is not verifiable and cannot be seen and cannot be proven. I'm also interested in the spiritualism that took hold in the late 19th century where there were seances and and things like that and people wanted to believe that the dead were communicating with them. So I'm interested in all of it, organized religion, cults, um, alternative beliefs, and spiritualism. All of it fascinates me. What fascinates me are the people who truly believe it. 
without any kind of proof or evidence. And they truly believe in these things. Truly. And I just can't quite explain it. And I can't believe in it myself. And yet there is a part of me that wishes I could believe in something. Wishes that I had a measure of peace and solace and healing. What I wouldn't give for that. Or think about mediums. There's tons of shows about mediums nowadays. And in the past, I used to watch things about mediums. So all of this interests me. Sort of these irrational beliefs that people have in things that you can't quite explain. There's such a mystery about it. You'll never be able to make sense of it, I don't think. But the the phenomenon of it, is fascinating to me and that's why I continue to watch things about it and I continue to be drawn to it and I think that this film Lord that's what interests me so much and why this place in France called Lord interests me that here was this girl 14 years old saw an apparition and look at everything that came about because of it And what's interesting is that Lord became so famous very quickly and she actually, Bernadette, left Lord. She had to leave because of the frenzy and everything that happened. She receded from public life and she went to live for the rest of her life in Nevers, uh, a school there. She learned to read and write. And she dedicated her life to faith and to God and her belief in God. She died in 1879 when she was 35 years old. And she was made a saint in 1933. So she lived an extraordinary life. Saw these apparitions. People believed in it. Built on top of this grotto. Built on top of this spring. And they continued to drink and bathe in that water. To touch the stone at the grotto to make pilgrimages every single year to this location. It pulls people to it. People are drawn to Lord, And I think Jessica Hausner's film, as I'm going to talk about, looks at that. She's looking at faith and religion and belief, but she's also playing with it too and bringing a bit of irony, a bit of humor. But she takes a story that could have been told in a million ways And she tells it in a way that is haunting and makes you think and raises questions. And I sometimes think the best films are like that, where they really make you think and they stay with you and they raise important questions about life and and belief and faith and illness and all kinds of things that I'm going to dig into now. directed by Jessica Hausner. I don't know if she is a very well-known director. She's an Austrian director. I've seen a couple of her films. I've seen Lord, obviously, and I've also seen a really good film that she did called Amor Fu, and it's about the German writer Heinrich von Kleist. It's a really great film. I love that one. But Lord, I saw it several years ago. It's just always stayed with me. And I feel like I say this about every film on the podcast. 
when I think about films that I want to cover, I take into account films that I've seen years ago that I still think about. I think that that says that something about a film needs to come out, that I need to talk about it, that it's gnawing at me in some way. And Lord has been that kind of film. As I said previously, I'm interested in films about faith. I'm interested in films about religion that look at it in a complex way, that sometimes look at it in a critical way, a questioning way. And I think Hausner certainly does that. It's interesting to note that Lord, the film, was actually filmed at Lord. It is shot there, it's set there, and that was actually a big deal. It's quite rare. The last time a film had been uh, shot on location at Lord was more than 20 years ago, or at least 20 years before this film. So that lends it a certain amount of authenticity and credibility that these characters are existing within the actual place and location of Lord. As I said earlier, Hausner was not sure that she could make the film. She thought it would be very cruel, but when she thought about the class differences of the volunteers being people with more money and then the pilgrims not having quite as much, there's a lot of contrasts in the film. That class is one of them, but also disability is a big one, where the volunteers are able-bodied. They're quote-unquote normal they lead normal lives. They don't have to worry about the fact that their bodies don't work properly, that they are disabled. That is, to me, a really big part of this film. And in several interviews, Hausner says that the film is like a fairy tale and also a parable. I'll put the interviews with Hausner in the show notes of this episode. I only I only found like two interviews that she had done related to Lord. And in one of them, for AustrianFilms.com, she said, quote, We all have an underlying hope inside which cannot really be explained. We live our life and try to find a meaning in it and happiness, ignoring the fact that it will come to an end, unquote. She also says, quote, I'd have to say that the theme of believing in miracles inspired me to make this film in part, but not so much the belief itself as the hope that something that completely reshuffles the cards can happen in your life, unquote. So she was drawn to this idea that people believe in miracles. They believe that something irrational could happen to them that could completely change their life. And she wanted to explore that. She wanted to explore what that could mean and how that would play out in a film. For me, what drew me to this film was two things. First of all, the way it looked at faith and religion in a really critical and complicated way, and also in a mysterious and haunting way, I think. The second is the way that it looks at disability. And this is a topic that really interests me, and I've done previous episodes about disability, whether it's about the diving bell and the butterfly and locked in syndrome. Those are two films about Jean Dominique Bobby, who was a magazine editor who had a stroke while he was driving. 
and it incapacitated him and paralyzed him, and he had what's called locked-in syndrome. He could not move, except he could flutter his eyelid, one eyelid, and they devised a system so that he could write his memoir, and it's called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, and it's an extraordinary story. Julian Schnabel's film called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly is an extraordinary film. I still love it. I also did an episode about a Romanian film that came out recently called Scarred Hearts, and it's based on the book of the same name by Max Blecker, and that's about a man who has Potts disease, and he's basically confined to his bed. And so I'm very interested in stories about disability, about the degradation of the body, the body not functioning properly, and how painful that can be, and having your health taken away from you, because that's something that profoundly resonates with me in my own life. Before my father died in 2006, he had a lot of health issues. This was a man, this is really personal. This episode has actually become more personal than I expected it to. But as I talk about religion, as I talk about things that I've struggled with, as I talk about disability, I realize that I have to be honest and I have to talk about these things. It's important to talk about these things. But my father had a lot of health issues before he died, but his death was still unexpected and sudden. And his death was not actually connected to those health issues. I'll just leave it at that. And so my whole life, my dad was very athletic, very healthy, very active. And then things started to change for him when he got into his 40s. And he had always been independent. He had always been able-bodied, able to do things, strong, very hardworking. He worked in um, a warehouse loading 18-wheeler trucks. He loaded huge boxes into trucks. That's what he did. He was working class. He didn't make a lot of money. I, I always grew up working class, sometimes sometimes poor, especially when he had his health problems because his his health problems made it so that he could not work anymore and he had to go on disability. And I talk more about that in my episode about Ken Loach's I, Daniel Blake. And that was a really painful experience. The way he was treated by doctors, the way he was treated by the medical system, the judgment and the shame that comes with being disabled in the United States of trying to get help if you are disabled. But he was basically going blind. My father was. And that was really hard to watch. To watch this man who, and he had other health issues beyond that. It was very hard to watch that happen to him. Someone who I used to play tennis with. Someone who used to play basketball. Someone who was active and able-bodied to watch him have to struggle. You know, a man that could provide for his family and then all of a sudden he couldn't. And what that did to him emotionally and how he struggled with the way his body was changing. And it was extremely painful for, for him. And he did not have the support that he needed. He did not have the resources that he needed to deal with that. And I feel haunted by it. In a lot of ways, I wonder, did I do enough? Was I was I a good enough daughter? Because it was hard for me to watch it. I didn't know how to deal with it. 
It was hard for me to see it. And I was only a teenager. He died when I was 16. So I try to forgive myself if I wasn't there for him the way I feel I should have been. But I, I, I think I did my best. I don't know. Maybe I didn't. I'm just sort of haunted by this terrible guilt, haunted by this feeling that I didn't do enough. I mean, it it really eats away at me at times. But to see someone you love go through that is extremely painful. And then I myself have struggled with my health since he died because his death was so traumatic to my mind and my body. I have depression, anxiety. I think I probably have PTSD to a certain extent, though it was never diagnosed because I've never had issue. I've never had access to health care because I don't have health insurance. So I do think I have PTSD to some extent. I have agoraphobia that I still deal with, physical health issues that I deal with, stemming from a job that I had in a factory when I was 18 years old after I graduated high school. After my dad died, it really plunged me and my mom into financial precarity and into poverty. And we struggled financially. So when I graduated high school, I did not go straight to college. I went and got a job at a factory. And my health has never been the same since. It, it affected me physically at times. I, I don't talk about it a lot on the podcast. I don't talk about it a lot to people. But I have very real things that I deal with. Some days my life just feels like a nightmare. Like when I really list it out, everything that I have been through... All these people who have died, everything that I've lost, losing my health has been really difficult too, that I'm 29 years old and I just don't have the health that other people my age have. I'm not able to do the things that they can do. I can't live the way that they live. I have to, I'm isolated. I'm alone because of it. It isolates you. And so this film is about faith. It's about disability. And it's also about loneliness. It's about a woman named Christine. And she's played by Sylvie Testu. And she's paralyzed. She's in a wheelchair. She's not able to move her body. She can't move her arms or her legs. Um, She has to be fed by somebody else. And she goes to Lord. She's not particularly pious or very religious, it doesn't seem. She's made other pilgrimages before um, to other places. We do find that out about her. And her pilgrimages are really the only way that she really gets to interact with people. Most of the time, she's very alone. And when she goes to Lord, she has a helper, a volunteer who wills, who pushes her wheelchair around, who feeds her, who puts her in bed. And that girl is played by Leia Seydoux. And this is a very early role for Leia Seydoux in 2009. This is before Blue is the Warmest Color. This is before she became really an international starlet. She has brown hair. She's very... Um, She wears just a normal sort of uniform. Um, She's not sexy or anything in this film. But I've always liked Leia. I always felt like Leia was a good actress. She does great work in Blue is the Warmest Color. And I think she does some good work in Lord too. But Sylvie Testu is really the, the star of the show. It's about Christine. And it's about how over the course of this film... 
at one point after she is put into the baths, she can start to move her hands. And then gradually she's able to lift her arms. And then one night she wakes up and she's able able to move. It seems to be this miraculous cure. Seems to be a miracle. And um, I'll talk a bit more about that later. But first I want to talk about Jessica Hausner's style in this film. Because this film is very spare, I would say. It has a spare style. There's a detachment to it as well. I think this is a film with a great deal of subtlety and nuance to it. Um, It's slow. It's a slower paced film as well. It's one that you really need to to sort of stick with it. It's not going to, there's not going to be any big moments or anything like that. You have to be willing to go with it to be open to this kind of film. And I think what sets Hausner apart, because I'm actually a really big fan of her work, I will watch her films. I watched Amorfu and I really loved it. And what's so great about her work is that the scenes and the shots are beautifully composed. There's a composition, almost like a painter. That's the way these shots are set up. And they're just, I don't know how to explain them. There's something sort of symmetrical about them or just something. You can tell that she has meticulously set up these scenes. There is a precision about them. There is a balance and and just something very aesthetically pleasing about them. The colors are very muted in the film. And and there are certain colors that recur throughout the film she has this very muted sort of color palette with red and white and green those are sort of the primary colors of this film so her style is very muted it's it's also very detached and I also noticed how I'm not good at talking about the technical skills of directors but I do try to notice it and with this film I noticed how a lot of the shots were very I don't know what the word would be, sort of off kilter, the way that she captures the characters in the scene, that it's not just a full on close up, that often Christine is like on the side of the frame or she's at a distance and things like that. She she just has a unique style, I think, one that sets her apart and one that makes this film linger because it's subtle and she just allows the story to take place. She doesn't force anything. She lets her characters just be and it's very naturalistic in a way as well even though at the same time it's precise, meticulously composed, beautifully balanced. There's also a naturalness about it too. The film captures Lord, I think in a really interesting way. There's this scene where the pilgrims are being wheeled past one of the gift shops. And so that shows us sort of the commercialization of Lord. And we see them eating in a dining hall. We see the rituals that take place throughout the film. Especially when they go to the grotto, they touch the stone. We go into the baths. She shows the baths and where the spring water is poured over people's bodies and Christine has those baths twice and it's after the second bath that the supposed miracle happens 
I think it would be really easy to have a portrait of Lord that's very reverential, that's very sentimental, that is overly fawning, um, because this is considered a sacred site. Hausner takes a very different approach in that she shows a really complex group of people. She's not sentimental about this place at all, or about the people or the characters in it. She shows these the group of pilgrims that Christine is part of. She shows like catty women who are always sort of gossiping. She shows the Leia Seydoux character whose name is Maria shows her as a young girl. I would say Leia was probably 19 or 20. She she comes off very young and immature because she doesn't want to be there really. Who knows why she's volunteered? She wants to just be a young girl. She wants to flirt with boys. She wants to go off and do things. And she lets Maria be that way. She lets Maria just be your average teenage girl or, you know, a young woman. And so at times we'll see her not really wanting to help Christine. At times she's feeding her and you can tell that she'd rather be anywhere else. We see her flirting with the boys, smiling at them. She has a crush on a man named Kuno, who's played by by Bruno Todeschini. And um, so that's sort of an ongoing thing where she has a, a crush on Kuno. And Kuno's kind of a an, in, an important character in the film somewhat. So there's a bit of humor to the film that it doesn't show Lord in some reverential way. It doesn't try to sanctify these characters um, or make them into victims or make them into saints or anything like that. It actually shows them in a really complex, sometimes funny, sometimes dark way. Because when Christine has that miracle cure, you would think people would be really excited and happy for her. And it's actually the opposite. After she has the cure, there's actually a lot of jealousy. And Hausner wanted to look at that. She wanted to look at how Obviously, people would wonder, why her and not me? And that's what the characters around Christine are wondering. Oh, well, why was she cured? Why is she able to walk and I'm not? And think about the cruelty of it, really, if you were to witness a miracle like that. That here you are, you are still disabled, you are still hurting, you are still in pain, and you watch somebody have theirs completely disappear. And you would wonder. And another strength of this film is that it raises questions about religion through the characters. Because at one time, one of the characters says, you know, if God is powerful, all powerful and good, why is anyone ill at all in the first place? Why is there suffering? Why isn't everybody cured? And there's a character, there's a priest there. And periodically the pilgrims and the people part of the group will go up to the priest and they will ask him, you know, well, why is this person um, not cured or, or things like Just ask him different questions. So Hausner lets her characters be real and authentic. She lets them have flaws and foibles. She lets them be gossipy and catty the way that real people are. 
And she gives that to, she gives that humanity. That's what it is. She gives that humanity to Christine too. In at one point, the pilgrims have gathered together and they're praying for each other. And people are talking about the things that I guess they're struggling with or that they would like God to help them with. And Christine says, quote, I sometimes feel that my life is passing me by. I feel useless. Please help me, unquote. And later on, she is talking to to the priest. And she tells the priest that sometimes she resents other people. She goes to confession and she says that she's angry at times. She wonders why she became sick. She resents that other people can walk and live normally. Hausner gives her that humanity to say, I'm angry. I'm resentful because that's how I feel at times with my body and my mind and everything I've been through that I wonder why did why did my father have to die when I was 16? Why did my father have to get sick? Why did he have to suffer? Why did I have to watch him suffering? I do wonder those things and that those are the reasons I can't be religious. Those are the reasons that I will never be religious. That what I have seen and known turns me away from religion because I can't conceive of a reason why these things would happen. Why, why I would be put through this, why my father would be put through that. And when I saw his body, his dead body, I knew there was no God. I mean, that is the exact thought I had in my mind. I said, there can be no God. This is not God. There can be no reason for this. Because I could not comprehend what I was seeing. That my father was dead. The horror of it was so extreme. There was no God there. And I will never, ever be religious because of it. Because I knew in that moment, I knew what life was. It's like it flashed before me, you know, and I saw the void. I saw nothingness and emptiness. That's what I saw when I saw my father's dead body. And I've never recovered from it. It was like a revelation in that moment to see him in a casket. I I knew my life was over. I knew everything was over. That life could never be the same again. And it hasn't. And it has taken a profound toll on my mind and my body. And this world and this society and capitalism and inequality has taken a toll on my mind and my body too. Not just his death. My mom struggles with her health. She has health issues. So it's something that is very much a part of my life disability, struggling with the body. It's a huge part of my life. So I have so much sympathy and compassion for Christine, so much sympathy for these pilgrims, and I have a lot of sympathy for her anger and her resentment, you know, of why why has this happened? And I like that Hausner gives her that humanity, gives her that anger, and raises those questions in the course of the film. If God is all-powerful, 
then why not cure everybody? Why is there suffering at all? And of course, when Christine gives her confession, the priest tells her that there is no such thing as normal. Her life is special. Um, Basically telling her that there is meaning in her suffering and and things like that. I find that kind of attitude really dismissive. And I find it also to be a really contradictory aspect of Lord that they want to insist that these pilgrims accept their fate and their lot in life. That's a big thing throughout the film that the priest says that the volunteers say that they never want people to think that they're going to be cured, that they're going to be healed. They emphasize that it's more about spiritual healing or emotional healing. Um, and they also insist that the pilgrims really accept their fate and accept their lot in life, accept their suffering. But at the same time, they're dangling this possibility of a cure in front of them. So it's very contradictory to me that they're saying, well, accept the way things are, even as they know that the whole reason that people are there at Lord is because they can't accept their lives. They can't accept the pain they are in, whether it's emotional or physical, that they are aching. They are longing for a cure. They are longing for a miracle in their own lives, and they want to believe that it could happen to them. So there's a contradictory message there. Oh, accept your fate. But here, the, here's this water that could completely change your fate and you could be cured. And so I think Hausner is exploring that too of how do you hold two contradictory things at the same time? Believing in miracles, believing that this could happen, but then also believing that everything happens for a reason and that God has done this to you for some sort of purpose but then at the same time, longing all the time for it to change and longing and, and hoping that a miracle will happen and you'll no longer be in pain. You'll no longer be disabled, you see. And I think it makes you ask yourself over the course of the film, do you yourself believe in things like this? Do you believe miracles can happen? What does it even mean to believe that? Do I think there are inexplicable and mysterious things that happen? Yes. I do think there are things that happen in life that cannot always be explained. Uh, yeah. Do I believe in miracles? Not necessarily. And I don't know what that means exactly. But I do think you have to acknowledge that there are things that happen that I... that can't be explained and that you don't totally understand there is a certain level of mystery in life that not everything can be understood not everything can be knowable that there is the unknown there and I don't know how we cope with that or what to make of that Christine's loneliness is something that I want to linger on for a little bit part of why I'm drawn to this film besides just its look at faith and its look at disability is its look at loneliness. Christine is a profoundly lonely character. And I was interested in talking about this film because I wanted to talk about that. I wanted to talk about 
how she navigates loneliness. And when Christine first arrives at Lord, the woman in charge, I think her name's Cecile, and she herself has health issues. And she will later pass out. And I'm I'm not sure if she dies, but she's in really bad health near the end of the film. When Christine first arrives at Lord Cecile gives this speech to the pilgrims. And she says, it's very interesting that she specifically mentions loneliness. She says that through the experience of Lord, the pilgrims will forget their loneliness for a little while. So part I, part of the reason I think that Christine has gone on this pilgrimage is not necessarily that she's very pious or very religious, but it's a way for her to be around other people, to connect to other people, because think about it, she's around other people who are like her. She's around other people who are in wheelchairs, whose bodies are different, whose bodies don't fit into the world. And she talks about how really these pilgrimages she takes, these trips she takes, are her only chance to really get out, to to be around other people. Because being in a wheelchair makes it really hard for her to navigate the world. Nobody is there with Christine. She doesn't have a mother, a father, a friend who is there for her to push the wheelchair. That's why she has Maria, played by Leia Seydoux. And that obviously raises the question, does she have anybody at all in her everyday life? Is she always alone, maybe except for a nurse? Obviously, she would need some kind of help in her everyday life. She has to be bathed and, and fed and and have her hair brushed and 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 all of those things and have her clothes put on. Obviously, she probably has a nurse or something like that, but she is a very lonely character throughout this film. And what's sort of painful about watching her is the contrast between her and Maria, that here is Christine in her wheelchair. She's confined to that. She's dependent on Maria if she wants to do anything or go anywhere and here is Maria who can walk freely go anywhere flirt with men she flirts with Kuno quite a few times has a crush on him which Christine Christine also has a crush on Kuno he's this older man he's very handsome Bruno Todeschini is very handsome I think personally um he's a good looking guy and Christine like tries to talk to him a little bit and she smiles at him and she probably dreams about having some kind of life with him even though she knows that that's not really possible because he barely acknowledges her at times. There There is a scene between them that I'll talk about in a minute. So Maria is sort of everything that Christine probably wants to be or wishes she could be. At one time, um, Christine can hear Maria outside her bedroom door sort of laughing. Maria comes up to the door and is like giggling and, and then she runs away. So all this is everything that Christine is denied that she's not able to have. All around her, she sees people living in a way that she can't live. And that's profoundly painful for her. And her loneliness is total, except for when she's with Maria and the other pilgrims. 
she's really only touched by Maria, who combs her hair, feeds her, puts her to bed. And there's just something so heartbreaking about that. The way she's not touched. The way she is denied that of just human touch and denied a certain amount of humanity. The way that Kuno and the other men and boys just sort of ignore her. Like they barely speak to her. But there is this scene where Kuno, he actually for once stops to talk to her. He engages with her for like the first time in the film. And he had actually been on a previous trip that she took to Rome. And he asks her if she prefers Rome or Lord. And she says that she prefers Rome. She really loved that trip. She says that it was more cultural. And then he briefly and suddenly places his hand over hers. And you can tell that she looks very jolted by it, that she's not prepared for it or used to it. And I'm not sure if she has feeling in her hands, if she can actually feel it, but it's still, it has an impact on her. The, and there's a power of, of that. There's a power to being touched by somebody else, especially a man, which she doesn't really have. I just thought that was really moving because I can relate to that in a lot of ways that I don't, I'm not touched often. Like that is not part of my life. I don't have friends. I don't have a lot of connections to other people in, in my everyday life. I'm very isolated, very alone. Um, so I understand what that's like, that when somebody suddenly touches you in a way that you don't expect that it just sort of affects you. I mean, I I still can remember times from like my childhood or times when I was at school when people unexpectedly touched me because it was so rare in my life to be touched and it still is. And so when it happens, it's like I remember it forever. I remember it when when somebody touched me. Um because for so much of my life, that hasn't been part of my experience in the world. Um, of being loved by people or touched by them or um, having any kind of intimacy with other people. So I, I really related to that scene when she just was so overpowered by Kuno touching her in that way when the magical cure happens when the miracle happens with christine you see the difference between the before and the after you see how before she was very alone she was very disconnected and isolated from people even the other pilgrims and then you see afterwards when she can walk and she can dance she's much more talkative with people. She's much more engaged. She feels like she's one of them. I will say that she goes to the medical office after her miracle cure. And the doctor says that her condition actually goes through phases of intensification and remission. So it's possible that she's going through a remission when she's able to move and walk and talk. She walks around with a cane, but she's still much more mobile than she was before. 
She can dress herself. She can feed herself. She can brush her hair. She can do everything. She just still has a cane that she takes with her. But the other pilgrims sort of resent her. They resent that they haven't been healed and they're sort of jealous. It's sort of like a whole new Christine when she's able to walk. She talks about how she wants to start a career She thinks that great things are in store for her, that she has a future. It's incredibly heartbreaking how much joy she feels, how she thinks that she has a second chance. She's so much more social, talkative, and connected to those around her. She goes on a hike with the pilgrims, and in the mountains, um, Kuno walks with her. They walk together by themselves, and he kisses her. Her life is opening up in so many ways. What this shows us is that it's a, it's a reminder that disability is, in, is affected and inflected by society itself and about how other people interact with a disabled person and how that's really what, what makes a difference. That Christine's who she's always been, but she was in a wheelchair before and people treated her differently and they didn't see her as equal to them. They didn't see her as a worthy person to interact with and to talk to. And the world limits the options of people who are disabled. That disability is structural. That it is affected by the way the world treats disabled people and the way that it, it the way the world itself is constructed to exclude disabled people. That that is part of the problem. The person who is disabled is not the problem. It's the world, it's the society in which the disabled person lives that affects their life. That if they are in a wheelchair and places don't have ramps so that they can access them, then that affects the disabled person's life. It affects, it limits their life. It limits their ability to interact with other people and, and to live their lives. Nothing has changed about Christine except the fact that she can walk. Kuno could have easily struck up more of a conversation with her before. He could have easily kissed her before. There's nothing really different except those prejudices against people who are disabled. Of course, all of this is more heartbreaking because the miracle does not last. If you've seen the film, hopefully you've seen the film. Because the ending is always what has haunted me the most. And it's such a mysterious ending too. Because she's at a party. Everybody's celebrating her. She's being celebrated so much because she's the miracle. She herself wonders why. She doesn't know why she's been chosen, right? And she's dancing with Kuno. And all of a sudden, out of the blue... You don't even expect it. She just falls to the ground. She just wipes out. And this is the beginning of the end. This is the reversal. This is that cruel betrayal of the body. Sort of like a butterfly going back into its cocoon. Because it is almost like she was reborn when she stood up out of that wheelchair and was able to move again. She's able to get back up, but she's struggling to stand. And she's very stubborn about it at first, but then her roommate brings the wheelchair over to her. And the way Sylvie Testu does this scene 
you can tell in Christine that she is unwilling to accept what is happening. That she's going to stand there. She's going to be stubborn. She will will herself to be cured. She will will herself because she has gotten a taste of that life. And it's so incredibly cruel. It's brutal. If you really think about it. To, for her to be able to experience everything that has been denied her. To have this whole other experience of the world. It's almost like a... It's almost like there's two worlds. There's the one that she's been inhabiting as a disabled person that is terrible because of the way people treat you. And then there's this whole other world out there of what it's like to be an able-bodied person and the way that people treat you. And she gets a taste of that other world. And then it is cruelly stripped away from her and already the gossipy women are are twittering and wondering if she's really cured and one guy says that he almost believed that it was really a miracle they really believed it and then they see that maybe it's not a miracle maybe it's not a cure at all but of course we don't know why it happened that's the mystery is all of a sudden she can walk and she had gone to the to the baths and she had the spring water had been put on her body and then all of a sudden she could walk but now she can't what does this say about god what does this say about their faith or their belief does it change it at all shouldn't it and she finally just sits in the wheelchair and that's how it ends and we realize that everything is going to come back that she's probably going to end up back in the wheelchair And that she just had a few days of living in a different world, really. And that it wasn't a miracle. It wasn't a cure at all. And it's another example of how something inexplicable could happen. Could that really happen? Possibly. Somebody could go to Lord and then suddenly feel better. And then it all come back again. Depending on what kind of condition they have. I think that ending is one of the most shocking that I've ever seen personally. Because you're going along with it. Like, oh, she can walk. Everything's going to be great. And Hausner completely subverts your expectations. She completely pulls the rug out from under you. And says, oh, you thought you were going to get your, your fairy tale happy ending. Guess what? That's not how life is. Life is not a fairy tale. The coach turns back into a pumpkin. Cinderella's gown dissolves and disappears and the girl the woman who could dance and walk goes back to her wheelchair because life is cruel fate can be cruel and how do you reconcile that with religion and faith and believing that there is an all-powerful benevolent God how do you reconcile those two things that life is cruel and painful and there is so much suffering Whether you go through it yourself or you witness it in other people. And how in the world could anyone allow it? How can there be any meaning to it or any purpose? The cruelty of that. So I think this ending is, it's shocking, but it's daring. It's incredibly confident and incredibly daring on the part of Jessica Hausner, I think. I think the whole film is daring in its slowness, in its precision, It's a confident film, I think, because not everybody can do that. Not everybody can take this story and these ideas 
and put them together in a film like this that completely blows your mind and provokes so many emotions and thoughts. This is a film that makes me think and it also makes me feel. You know, I feel for Christine. I think about my own experiences with loneliness, with disability, with faith and religion, my own struggles with it. I think about the mystery of the body, the mystery of health, how little control we have over it. And yet we live in a society, especially here in the United States, that is obsessed with health, that is obsessed with wellness, is obsessed with individuality and with blaming people who are not healthy and that has very little compassion for people who are disabled. Even though most of us throughout our lives will not stay in good health. That as we age, as we go through things, we will not always be healthy, but it is something that we can't come to terms with. And people who are disabled are lonely, are often lonely and isolated because of the way the world treats them. It's not their disability. It's the way people treat them, the way people abandon them, the way people will not help them or adjust to their situation. We like to think that we have control over everything, at least here in the United States. We are just obsessed with controlling everything. That anything that happens is your fault. If you're poor, it's your fault. If you have bad health, it's your fault. There is judgment in and blame and this very individualistic way of seeing the world that does not take into account how little we have in our control and within our power. And I want to talk a bit about something. I think there is a level of cruelty about Lord and that it, there, it is cruel to make people think that they can be cured. Because I have a problem and I think a lot of other disability activists, disability scholars would have a big problem with the obsession with being cured. Because it implies that people who are disabled are defective and there's something wrong with them. And I th wonder, instead of these millions of people making this, at times I'm sure, arduous pilgrimage to Lord, how could that time be better spent? What are other ways that people could find healing and comfort that is not through religion, that is not through Lord? And this is something that I struggle with as an atheist. And it's something I want to touch on is that What's hard about being an atheist is the lack of community, is the lack of comfort and solace. And I've had to find comfort and solace through art. That's why films, that's why cinema is a salvation to me. That's why literature is a salvation to me. And writing and other forms of art. That's why I cling to them the way that I do, because what else do I have? I don't have a church to go to. I don't have a priest to talk to or a preacher. I don't have these things. I don't have this thing set up that gives me community or that gives me a connection to other people. And so I think when you are an atheist or agnostic, or maybe if you're just questioning right and you don't understand or know what you feel it can in, it can intensify your isolation and your loneliness so what religion offers to people is that sense of community and it tries to offer easy answers at times to people as well go to lord 
wash and you know bathe in this water drink this water and you might possibly be cured even though there's only been 70 confirmed miracles it gives that hope to people and that's what they need people need hope but i i wish that we could reconceptualize these things i wish that the people who were going to lord were maybe offered other alternatives that instead of being told well go to lord and drink this water and maybe you'll be healed maybe they could be given counseling to better cope with their disability maybe they could be given better resources maybe we could think about the way our society is structured that excludes disabled people and that puts many disabled people keeps them in poverty and doesn't help them and doesn't give them what they need to live in the world and i think that disability activism is is very important in this way that it pushes back and it reminds us of the structural aspects of disability of people not having access to resources of the way buildings are are built you know without ramps and other things like that there was a big thing that happened recently when the straw ban the plastic straw ban happened i don't know how many cities are doing that i know starbucks is trying to phase out the plastic straws and you had a lot of disability activists speaking up and saying hey wait wait a minute straws make up a very tiny tiny percentage of the plastic waste in our oceans but straws happen to really benefit people with disabilities why are we focusing on this one little thing that helps disabled people instead of other causes of plastic pollution and that was a very important discussion that needed to be had i think there are ways to help the environment that doesn't disempower people who have disabilities so that's one way that i'm talking about you know instead of people feeling wrong instead of people feeling like well i need to go to lord and i need to be cured and i need to be healed what are other avenues that healing could be found what are other ways now i'm not judging people who go to lord i know there are people who go there who are in extreme physical pain who have extreme trauma to their mind and their body and they are just searching they are searching for some kind of peace at the end of that pbs documentary a lot of the people who had been to lord said that they felt a sense of healing and a sense a sense of peace even though physically they were still in the same condition that it gave them something to go to lord the story and something about it does help people and i would never deny that to anyone and i would never judge anybody for getting comfort or solace out of that but i do have to wonder what happens after you leave and you're not cured and no miracle happened and you're still in the wheelchair or you're still struggling with ptsd or you're still dealing with your physical ailments like your blindness or something like that what do those people do next when maybe they thought that going to lord would change them or cure them what do they do when it doesn't so what are alternatives what are ways that we could help disabled people live more fulfilling and supportive and nourishing lives in the world and give them support and break down that disconnection and that loneliness and that isolation what are ways that we could do that 
to make them feel more connected, to make them feel part of a community. Christine talked about how she felt useless. How could we make people with disabilities or people with trauma and pain not feel useless? So I think what these things can do, I'm not saying that they're they're bad, but it kind of gets society off the hook. Just send them to Lord and maybe they'll get cured. Well, it completely erases, overlooks, ignores the way that society perpetuates terrible things against the disabled, against people with mental illness and physical illness, how it doesn't give them the health care they need. It doesn't give them access to counseling and therapy that they need. It doesn't give them a support system. It doesn't give them so many things. We completely ignore that. That needs to be part of the conversation. That's what needs to be talked about. And I learned that when I saw my dad go through his issues and he was trying to get help and he was trying to provide for his family in some way and and support himself and he didn't get what he needed. A lot of people don't get the support that they need to deal with the way that their bodies and their minds have changed. Because the Lord doesn't give them any of that, does it? It doesn't give them counseling. It doesn't give them help. It's an experience. It's a few days or however long with the rituals and the bathing and drinking the water and touching the stone. And then you leave. And then your life continues after that. Christine's life. I know she's a character in a film. I talk about her like she's real. But the Christines of the world, their lives go on after they leave the Lord. And they go right back to where they were before. What has changed? So, yeah, I think there is a cruelty about it. I think a lot of those five million people go hoping, maybe I'll be the one in a million or the one in however many million or billion Maybe I'll be the miracle. Maybe I'll be cured. And I absolutely understand that desire and that wish. God, don't you think I wish my dad would have woke up and he had his eyesight back? Don't you think I could wake up and not be agoraphobic or not have my health issues? Don't you wish I long for that? Absolutely. I wish it could all be reversed. But that's not what life gives us. It gives us whatever we have. And we have to find a way to cope with it and deal with it. But often we live in societies that do not give us any help and do not give us any resources. And often that is what exacerbates the very conditions that we are struggling with. That if you already have PTSD or depression or anxiety or agoraphobia and you can't get any help for it, or you live in a world that has no compassion or sympathy for it, those very conditions will be exacerbated. Or if you have physical ailments and you can't get the help you need because you can't afford it, you can't get the surgeries you need. I mean, tens of thousands of people die every year in the United States because they don't have health insurance, because they have chronic medical conditions or other medical conditions that are, they're not getting the care that they need for them. That's a reality in this world. And it's not talked about enough. Instead of going to Lord or sending people to Lord or telling people you can wake up and be cured through a miracle, we would do better to actually care about people who are disabled, people who are in pain, who are suffering. 
if we could create societies that actually cared and try to alleviate that suffering. I will say one thing that was a beautiful thing about Christine being at Lord is that she was taken care of. They fed her, they clothed her, they brushed her hair, they put her to bed. She was with other people who were like her and were struggling. And so there was a sense of community, a sense of her being taken care of. And that was a beautiful thing about it, was that she was given that. And that she probably did feel cared for. She did feel like a person. She did feel like somebody cared. And what if we could create societies like that for for people who were disabled, people who were suffering different ailments and and different conditions, both mental, mental and physical? How could we create that world? How could we create those societies? I wonder it every day. I don't know if I would live to see it, but I think it's important for us to talk about it and to try to imagine it and to try to bring it into being. I'm not sure how that would happen. Politically, the only way I think it could happen is through socialism, is through democratic socialism, a society that affirmed the value, the dignity of all human life, where health care was a human right, where clean air and a clean environment was a human right, where workers were taken care of and there was a safety net and a support system. I absolutely envision that with a democratic socialist society. This film is about so much and it brings up so much, both personal and political for me, because my own life intersects with some of these issues of disability and faith and loneliness. And um, I'm really glad that this film gave me the space to talk about some things that I have struggled with for years and that I will probably always struggle with in my life. So I really thank you for listening to this episode. I love this film. It will always haunt me. It gets at these mysteries. There's something very mysterious about the film. I love how Jessica Hausner does not give us any easy answers. Could it have been a miracle? What do you believe? Was it her condition going into remission briefly? So many questions, so many mysteries. But I think sometimes those can be the best films. The films that don't answer everything. The films that leave you with questions. The films that make you think about what is unknowable. So I hope if you watched this film, I hope that it possibly raised similar questions or other questions. I hope that... It stays with you the way that it did me. Maybe it won't. But I thank you so much for listening to this episode. I will stop here. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.